0: Welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is February 4, 2024, and I'm your host, James Myers. It's an honor to welcome in discussion members of the Toronto, Calgary, and Chicago philosophy meetup groups. Whether you've been with us before or here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. This is the second session of our extended series on Plato's longest dialogue, The Laws, and we'll be picking up near its end with Book 10 starting at 897a, which is where we left off two weeks ago. At that point, the unnamed Athenian, Clinius from Crete, and Megillus from Sparta were discussing the order of the soul in the universe, as they establish a constitutional basis for a new Cretan colony to be called Magnesia. As we conclude the last half of Book 10 today, Will be confronted with a death penalty that the three men agree should apply to the impious soul that refuses to acknowledge reason, and will have to consider whether the punishment is reasonable in the circumstances they describe. So as always, to contribute your thoughts to our discussion today, please use the Raise Hands feature in Zoom, and for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. So that everyone has a chance to speak, I'll call on you in the order that hands are raised, using first name only. Once we finish recording in two hours, I invite anyone who wishes to remain online for Plato's Café, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. In the notes I posted to the shared drive, I suggested three themes for today's discussion. The first focuses on the path to reason for the soul when, as we heard the Athenian explain in our last session, there are at least two souls, one that does good and the other which has the opposite capacity. Today's reading includes the assertion that the soul is a divinity and equates the soul with reason. It draws from the proof of the soul's universal primacy provided by the Athenian in the previous section, which he based on the physics of motion in a spherical universe, as well as the cause of the very first motion. Now we hear him proceed to explain rational motion, which is alternatively translated as the motion of reason. It's important to recall the agreement the three reached previously, that self-generating motion is unique to the soul, whereas physical objects are endowed with neither random nor perpetual motion. I think we'll find in this section, and throughout the laws, that the soul's capacity for reason, which moderates need and desire in Plato's view of the soul, is of utmost concern for the lawgiver, given that the universe itself has a soul. The second theme involves the challenge the Athenian presents to those who deny the soul as the first cause in the universe. The deniers must either provide a logical proof that matter is the first cause and arrive before a soul, or else agree to believe in the gods. As we explore this, we can revisit the definition of gods that we heard two weeks ago, that, being the first elements of the whole of the universe, gods are not supernatural beings, but are intrinsic to nature and soul. The problem that deniers of soul as a primary cause will encounter is that the soul and its capacity of reason defy empirical evidence, because they're in the domain of the unchanging, timeless, and eternal realm of being, whereas our physical senses are trapped in the ever-changing and time-limited realm of becoming. This is the reason the Athenian will say today that the question must be addressed with reference to images, since the original is beyond physical perception. Although the soul isn't subject to empirical evidence, its existence is accessible to our faculty of reason, which is our bridge between the realms of being and becoming in a spherical universe that encompasses both. The three men argue that since the proof of soul as the first cause of motion stands to reason, then to deny primacy of the soul is to deny reason. At this point, the soul is no longer a question of individual belief, It is, at least in their argument, a matter-of-fact. The third theme focuses on the question of what to do with the impious soul, and for that matter, the definition of impiety. It's an important definition, because the proposed Constitution for Magnesia will sentence to death those who continue to deny reason after all explanation and attempts at reconciliation and reform. Since the three men don't appear to be theocratic tyrants, like some examples we see today, let's bear in mind two things as we read this section. Firstly, for Plato, the body dies, but the soul never dies. And secondly, that impiety is defined in this section differently from today's definitions. The translation we're using from 1956 suffers in this regard because it uses the word atheist, which is not a word of Plato's time, and is now generally used for someone who doesn't share a belief. But at this point in the dialogue, the three characters have moved beyond belief. On the divided line of knowledge and arrived at the very point of knowledge in defining God and establishing soul and reason as the first cause. The death penalty isn't prescribed for failure to share in a belief, but the three men prescribe it for failure to accept knowledge and reason, which is not characteristic of a good soul but of a bad one. Cultivation of good souls, we'll hear when we move to book one in two weeks, is essential to a peaceful constitution when many constitutions even now are constructed more with a view to war. So I hope this introduction is helpful to understand the context, and now I'll begin today's discussion by reading the passages from 897a to 898c as it presents the motion of reason. I'll turn to this, the Athenian starts, Very well then. So soul, by virtue of its own motions, stirs into movement everything in the heavens and on earth and in the sea. The names of the motions of the soul are wish, reflection, diligence, counsel, opinion true and false, joy and grief cheerfulness and fear, love and hate. Soul also uses all relating or initiating motions which take over the secondary movements of matter and stimulate everything to increase or diminish, separate or combine with the accompanying heat and cold, heaviness and lightness, roughness and smoothness, white and black, bitter and sweet. These are the instruments the soul uses, whether it cleaves to divine reason, soul itself being, if the truth were told, a divinity, and guides everything to an appropriate and successful conclusion, or allies itself with unreason and produces completely opposite results. Shall we agree that this is the case, or do we still suspect that the truth may be different? By no means, Clinius answers. The Athenian continues, Well then, what kind of soul, may we say, has gained control of the heavens and earth and their entire cycle of movement? Is it the rational and supremely virtuous kind, or that which has neither advantage? Would you like our reply to run like this? How? asks Clinias. The Athenian responds, If, my fellow, we should say, the whole course and movement of the heavens and all that is in them reflect the motion and revolution and calculation of reason, and operate in a corresponding fashion, then clearly we have to admit that it is the best kind of soul that cares for the entire universe and directs it along the best path. True, says Clinius. If, however, these things move in an unbalanced and disorganized way, we must say the evil kind of soul is in charge of them. That too is true, responds Clinius. The Athenian continues. So what is the nature of rational motion? Now this, my friends, is a question to which it is difficult to give an answer that will make sense. So you're justified here in calling me in to help with your reply. Good, responds Clinias. The Athenian says, still, in answering this question, we mustn't assume that mortal eyes will ever be able to look upon reason and get to know it adequately. Let's not produce darkness at noon, so to speak, by looking at the sun direct. We can save our sight by looking at an image of the object we're asking about. How do you mean? asks Clinias. What about selecting from among our list of ten motions the one which reason resembles, and taking that as our image? I'll join you in recalling it, and then we'll give a joint answer to the question. Clinius responds, yes, that's probably your best method of explanation. The Athenian continues, do we still remember at any rate this from the list of points we made earlier, that all things are either in motion or at rest? Yes, we do, affirms Clinius. The Athenian says, And some of those in motion move in a single location, others in a succession of locations? Yes, that's so, agrees Clinius. The Athenian continues, of these two motions, that taking place in a single location necessarily implies continuous revolution round a central point, just like wheels being turned on a lathe. And this kind of motion bears the closest possible affinity and likeness to the cyclical movement of reason. What do you mean, says Clinius? Take reason on the one hand and motion in a single location on the other. If we were to point out that in both cases the motion was determined by a single plan and procedure, and that it was A, regular, B, uniform, C, always at the same point in space, D, around a fixed center, E, in the same position relative to other objects, and were to illustrate both by the example of a sphere being turned on a lathe, then no one could ever show us up for incompetent makers of verbal images. You are quite right, agrees Clinias. Athenian continues. Now consider the motion that is never uniform or regular or at the same point in space, or around the same center, or in the same relative position, or in a single location, and is neither planned nor organized nor systematic. Wouldn't that motion be associated with every kind of unreason? Absolutely true, it will, affirms Clinias. The Athenian ends. So now there's no difficulty in saying right out that since we find that the entire cycle of events is to be attributed to soul, the heavens that we see revolving must necessarily be driven round, we have to say, because they are arranged and directed either by the best kind of soul or by the other sort. So thank you for listening to that. So that was the translation that we're using, but here I wanted to just read two brief bits from an alternate translation, which I actually find is clearer in this part here where the Athenian starts. Of these two motions, that taking place in a single location necessarily implies continuous revolution around a central point. So let me read this alternative translation. I think this is from 2018, if I'm not mistaken. And the Athenian says, Of these two motions, the one moving always in one place must necessarily move around some midpoint, being an imitation of wheels turned on a lathe, and in every way it has the greatest possible kinship and likeness to the orbit of reason. What do you mean? asks Clinius. Athenian responds, certainly if we said that, in both cases, reason and the motion moving in one place, moving was 1 in relation to the same things, 2 in the same way, 3 in the same place, 4 around the same things, 5 toward the same things, and 6 according to one formula and one order, and illustrated both by the motions of a sphere turned on a lathe, we would never appear to be poor craftsmen of beautiful images and speech. What you say is most correct, agrees Clinius. The Athenian continues, but wouldn't the motion that never moves one in the same way, nor two according to what is the same, nor three in the same place, nor four around the same things, nor five toward the same things, nor six in one place, nor seven in an arrangement or order or some formula, be akin to a complete lack of reason? Most truly it would, agrees Clinius. So I wanted to read that alternative translation because I like the way it used the word same, because same is one of the five key forms from the sophist, right, the same, the different, change and rest, and that which is. Those are the five key forms from the sophist. So I like the way that the alternative translation appealed to the word same. So I just wanted to read that. The other thing I wanted to highlight is the use of the word cycle three times. Cycle is used with reference to motion, Cycle was referred to in terms of the motion of the soul. And here on the screen, there's the term cycle of events. So cycle is used three times in this passage, which may be Plato's way of referring to a bit of spherical geometry, maybe, because he did say the universe is spherical. So what are your thoughts in this section? Peter.
1: Oh, thank you. So it does seem that in relationship to the, the atomist sort of perspective, that if things are elemental in nature, uh, that things sort of in regards to its syn- synonym with the atheist perspective that things are fundamentally in regard to the fixed pattern and therefore not alive where I think the Athenian here is suggesting that well it is because it is the fixed pattern that ends up being the eternal noetic the the soul being that which is consistent that which is of a, not unmoving but unchanging and so it's just another angle of approaching the same uh. That the root object that the atomist believes produces subject, so um, the Athenian is suggesting is the root subject producing all its of uh, um the, the the let's say the illusion of separation from eternal uh cyclical nature of of mind.
0: Well, thank you for that. That that's an interesting use of the idea of fixed pattern, and I would just recall again what we heard in the last session two weeks ago, that the soul is capable of self-generated motion. And that's the only thing in the universe that has that capacity. So maybe it's not the soul itself that's fixed. I don't think you're saying that. I think it's more that there's a fixture in the middle of the universe is what Plato is saying. And certainly that the soul has that consistency that you mentioned, I think reason is the basis of its consistency.
1: Yes. And so that it's it's because it's eternally consistent in regards yeah. to its predictability. Right. The, uh, the, the the atomist sees it as an object where the Athenian sees it as a subject.
0: Right, right. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting subject. And, and it's consistent with itself. It's it's logical with itself, I guess, is is maybe a way of seeing it. Well, thank you for that perspective. Darren, your thoughts?
2: Um the description of the motion of reason. Here in the in these passages is almost an exact echo of the Timaeus, which we read last in the fall. So it's always interesting to find these correspondences since there's there's a lot that's diverges in the way he describes things. But you know, this is one thing he's going to be consistent about about the motion of reason. So that's just my observation.
0: Mm-hmm. Thanks. And and yeah, very important to recall that motion was the basis on which the Athenian proved or thinks that he proved, at least, uh, that the soul is prime in the universe, because how would matter otherwise get into motion? What caused the matter? What is the primary cause? And so he used motion as the means of explaining why the soul is the primary cause. So thanks, and we'll move to Michael and then Steve.
3: I want to add a comment here about the motion of reason, because as I was reading this, I was a little bit puzzled in a way, Um, I agree with Darren, this picture of the motion of reason corresponds with certain very metaphysical conceptions of the nature of being that Plato gives us. But it's somewhat at odds, I think, with the nature of the dialectical conversation in some of his other works. So if you think of a a dialogue like the Theaetetus, which is very circuitous, moves back and forth, doesn't seem to have a fixed center. And I was trying to figure out how is Plato uh, thinking of maybe these two movements of reason. And something that I found helpful is Aristotle's distinction between the order of nature and the order of reason, where Aristotle sort of says, like, there's a coming to know something that is going to be a really difficult circuitous back and forth kind of path. And then there's the reality of the thing known. And uh, that, you know, after you've figured it out, you can go back and construct this neat account. And I suspect here that Plato is giving us that conception of the motion of reason, that this isn't this isn't an epistemological so much as this is what reason looks like in its ultimate nature and its final reality and the way the cosmos was ordered and so forth. Um, But I think Plato is realistic enough in his other dialogues to say, we're not going to just see that right away. We're not going to have this nice, neat orderly motion to our reason up front. We're going to have a lot of messy thinking to do before we can get to this kind of rational insight.
0: Well put. Thank you for that. And it just made me think of this section here from Plato's Cratylus that I have on the screen. This is from 425A to B in the Cratylus saying, our job, if indeed we are to examine all these things with scientific knowledge, is to divide where they put together so as to see whether or not both the primary and derivative names are given in accord with nature. For any other way of connecting names to things homogenes is inferior and unsystematic. And that kind of made me think, as you were saying, Michael, that Reason is a maybe more of a dialectical process back and forth, where it's not just something that appears out of the blue, and reason is a fixed property maybe to oral Peter's term, but you know reason is something that goes back and forth. And so I have this picture on the screen of a circle since the universe is spherical. I put a circle and I put the observer in the top half and the observed in the bottom half, and the observer would be the soul. And the soul has to observe the limits of the physical. Uh, and there's two limits. And so it needs to find those two limits. And that's a process that takes time in the realm of becoming, I guess. So that made me think of this. And, and there, there are echoes of the cradless throughout this dialogue, for sure, in terms of nature versus convention. And I think there's a very, uh, there's an appeal to the soul as something that is very natural here. So so thanks. And we'll go to Steve and Clem.
4: I think it's important to look at it from the big picture of what they're talking about, this is uh, Plato's laws as the uh, supplement to the Republic, determining what are the laws for the good laws for the Republic. So I think it's, it's really important to keep in mind what they're actually doing here. They're talking about forming a state religion. And, you know, these arguments that they're given right now are just showing... Uh, and they can give very thin reasons for the need for state religion. They talk about how the young people are going to and, and non non-believers or non-acceptors of knowledge are, are going to do bad things because of that state, but you know, and they need to do it. But everything else they've been doing, the laws that they've been proposing, you know, like uh, don't steal. Don't you know? Cause violence. Those are the actual things that are set up by rational and uh, empathetic uh, people to say that you know this is like it's like the law of uh, you know do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So those actual laws are the things that are in that people are putting in place in a good state. And putting a state religion in there then you have to be able to argue it that, you know, they're arguing because they say, well, we have time. And let's first, before we, you know, put the people to death, let's give them a good argument and see if we convince them because of our knowledge in Uh, quote, scare quotes, our knowledge is, is correct. So before we put them to death, let's give them a good argument. But, you know, the idea that they're going to have a state religion that you should be able to substitute any religion. It could be Egyptian, you know, beliefs and knowledge of the afterworld. Christians would say that they have a a knowledge of God as they perceive it and and the rules and the laws. But let's take Indian uh, Hindu cosmology, rich, deep, ancient, more ancient than the Greek as far as their knowledge and science. We should be able to place any other belief system in there and say, you know the bottom line here is what they're doing for the good of the the republic to have a state religion,
0: and I guess how do you define religion, Steve? Is religion a, a belief or is it something that's based on fact?
4: Well, we're saying it, regardless uh, well, if you you're who's saying that it's based on facts? The person mm-hmm. that you know, so if mm-hmm. you lived in, uh, communist China during the Cultural Revolution, right. the facts were that, you know, what they said they were, that, you know, you right. needed to be moved out to the countryside. If you lived in the in the, any of the countries in Europe during the Middle Ages, if you were in one country, the facts were that, you know, Christianity was the correct, you know, just by them saying that it's no longer belief, it's a fact. I'm saying that you're requiring people to believe the state authorized doctrinal fact. What the state has decided is the facts. So that's mm-hmm. what I call a religious state where you're requiring people to believe or to... that believe, I mean, the word is either belief or, you know, you're saying knowledge, but, you know, what what is the basis of the knowledge that somebody has decided that they've proved it beyond doubt that it's correct, so now you have to believe it. So people don't believe... In uh, Plato's, you know, form in anywhere in the world, as far as the state government. So, you know, I don't, I don't get the, how he can make that differentiation.
0: And, and it's an important differentiation, I think that um, absolutely. If if we think that the Athenian has not proved that the soul was the first cause of motion, then maybe what they are establishing is a system of belief rather than a system of facts. Um, what if it, what if he yeah.
4: has proved it? He okay. has proved it. Now I have to follow. I, I have to go along. If I don't go along with them, right. then I, I should be subject to death. He's well, proved it beyond yeah. doubt. There's no he's, he's yeah. made his case. So th- then the question is, should there be a state, whatever you want to call it, doctrinal uh, gulag for right. people that don't believe in it or don't agree with it? Let's say agree instead of believe. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and and that's Don't the question. Want to follow it yeah, yeah and that, that's absolutely the question. Do we think that this penalty, if they think that they establish that a soul is bad because the the soul goes against what has been proven as fact and the soul continues to deny fact, then does that soul deserve to die? Um, that's the question. and I you know it, it's thank you for or, raising it
4: or yeah. have any consequences of any nature yeah. if anybody doesn't go along with, you know, like if in this country now, or around the world, there's a lot of people that don't agree with the proof that the Earth is not round They be- or spherical. They believe it's flat. Mm-hmm. You know, So I mean, we shouldn't impose any penalty on them just because of that. And mm-hmm. thank you.
0: Well, and, and thanks. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely return to that question. So I appreciate you raising it. Uh, we'll go to Clem, and then Ian, and then Darren.
5: Hi. Um, yeah, I think. What Steve was mentioning is kind of what I was trying to say also, maybe differently in our previous meeting, where I was trying to raise this question whether a certain metaphysical model can be used to manufacture some kind of social order. So in other words, you you use one purpose to which is you know trying to find out the the truth and the, the the nature of the universe if you can use that to build on that into the realm of the society and build you know some kind of you know maybe hierarchical structure or something like that which i think it's quite possible to do that and we should be uh careful about any attempt like that and i'm not saying that it's incorrect 100% always incorrect what i'm saying is we have to be really really careful with any such attempt and yeah we'll see that in the following pages where i think what they're trying to do that they're trying to propose some kind of maybe religious or social reform which reminds me that the biblical story of getting rid of individual type of worship and having everybody go into a single temple to do the sacrifice, which is, if you think about it, it's a stream of revenue that's now going directly to the state. And so it's the it's the whole different economical model, and maybe the economy is what's really driving this. Then there's very insincere attempt to use the, the metaphysics to support that. So that's where I see the danger, but I'm sure we'll discuss that in, in the following passages. Um, as far as the metaphysical model itself, I'm still... And that's what I also tried to mention uh, last time. I'm still kind of puzzled with how Plato is trying to use physical properties and apply them to a non-physical object such as soul. He's using probably I you know if if this is just an analogy, I'm fine with that. But I think there's a great confusion at least in how this is being elaborated between what's real analogy and how things are in in their true nature but anyway he's saying let's use a circle and points on the circle that revolve in a circular motion and that's considered to be the original self-moving source and then he compares this to the soul and then right away he says well the, the soul has all these non-physical properties such as anger thought perception let's say you know perception of color and so on, which do not really exist in the physical realm. So there's a right away a seeming apparent confusion between physical properties and non-physical. And then he goes even as far as to say that non-physical are the first, like the you know so-called true properties of the soul, like anger, happiness, and so on. And then they put in motion other things which. Then appear to be physical, then, then they happen in space. Now, these feelings, thoughts, perceptions are not obviously happening in space. We know that for a fact because <laughs> it happens in our mind uh, and it's it's difficult to prove that it's it's a spatial thing. I mean, we let's say we imagine a triangle and it's in our imagination, it is spatial, but it's not spatial in, in the real space but then he's it appears like he's trying to use the real space to demonstrate the origin or the properties of something of the motion and then the motion is really it's difficult to think of motion as something that's other than space now if this was written differently and he made you know certain you know additional explanations there saying that this is the analogy i'm not really talking about physical properties and and so on we would clarify the whole picture maybe and i think that's what maybe you know, later Neoplatonics are doing, the Christianity, the, the Christian doctrine goes on maybe to elaborate further. But at this point, it's not really that metaphysically that convincing, or that it's not really that smooth, I should say. That's my own perception. And then the last thing is, you know, then he goes on to say that the non-physical properties then translate into physical, which it's a logical step. It's just he's not, again, explaining the mechanics of that. Like, how, how does that happen? So that's my little critique of the theory and then go with this Mm -hmm. theory. and, And just using just that and to justify a religious reform on that, it's just a little bit of an
0: overstretch. You've pointed out really the, I think the core issue with this dialogue is to connect this idea of physical motion with something that's not physical, something that's metaphysical, like the soul. And it's a complicated proof. It's one that I think, you know, it could be more complicated, but I think he's trying to put it in a sense that is understandable by using this analogy of the lathe, for example. So, you know, again, building on all of his cosmology, not just in this dialogue, but other dialogues as well, but central to it is that the universe is spherical. And, you know, they've said that we can't look at this empirically, so we have to look at it by reference to images of of what reality is, and so that's why they choose these, you know, this example of a lathe. Um, and, you know, as you said, I mean, the, the soul, what is motion? Well, he talks about the motions of the soul being wish, reflection, diligence, counsel, opinion, joy and grief, cheerfulness, and fear. As you say, I mean, we think of motion typically as movement in space, but it's also change in condition, as Plato defined in the Theotetus. So the soul is not in space and time. But uh, it does change in condition, so it has motions of itself. So it's this difficult problem that Plato has, having defined the universe as consisting of, in one case, infinite being, which we don't have physical access to. Our, Our senses are not part of that infinite realm of being, but our mind is, our soul is, but our physical senses are trapped in the realm of becoming. So somehow we have to find that bridge between the realms of being and becoming and I think he's trying to do that with this idea of finding what's what has the closest possible affinity to that which is in becoming. How can we most closely imagine this? Uh, and, you know, that image of the pixelated sphere that I have again on the screen, I had it last session as well. I just picture the soul as being that kind of infinite point in the middle of that circular thing with the um, continuous revolution going around it. And that's maybe that one point that the soul is looking for, that one point of reason. So, you know, but you definitely highlighted the key points and definitely the need for care, especially if things like the death penalty are going to be prescribed, one has to be very cautious that one is talking about knowledge and not just belief. So we'll see where we go with that, but thank you for raising it. Um, We'll go to Ian, then Darren, then Peter. Welcome, Ian.
6: Thank you, James. Great to hear everybody. And so many interesting points brought up. And I know that Clem, if I understand correctly, you were talking about the relation between soul and body and how you get from one realm to the other. And I'm not sure that he totally solves that. But in a part where I don't, I'm not sure if you got down to 898E, James, uh, or where you stopped exactly, but just to flag this, He talks about the sun's body is seen by everyone, but it's sold by no one. And then he mentions that, how is it moved? Actually going down a little bit below where he talks about the sun. And he says, either the soul exists everywhere in this globular body and directs it. This is at uh, 898E. directs it such as it is, just as the soul in us moves us about in all ways. And there Plato might be giving us a hint that the soul really exists everywhere inside of our bodies and is kind of distributed universally and equally somehow. And then he might take that up more in the Timaeus. Um, But one of the, the, the thing I was really trying to draw attention to was... The idea of an image that he is giving us and an image in speech. And I know that some people have already raised the question you know, is this true knowledge? How are we supposed to take this? And it's possible that in your last session, you were talking about how he says, Yes, I want to give a reasoned argument, a logos, which is sufficient. Uh, And the Greek word for that might be hykonos. So to what level of accuracy does this raise? Here he's signaling very clearly that, as you read, we can't look directly at the sun in this case. And we have to look at an image. And the word image there at 897E is a dolon. And Then he comes back to this idea on the next page where he says at 898B, well, we're liking it to the spinning of a turning globe. And if we describe it all in this way, we should never be in danger of being deemed unskillful in the construction of fair images by speech. So he's saying, this is all we can do when we are trying to express ourselves in speech about these things. And we have to rely on images very often.
0: Thank you. And, and thank you for reading that part. Actually, I have 898E uh here on the screen. I was going to read that next, but thank you for tying that in. And then also the uh, 898 B part about how some, how words are limited to certain, things that can be expressed with reference to physical things, I think, and that's the reason that the images are invoked in this. But where they take it, you know, certainly we'll find, I think, some debate in this next part, in that part about 890 AD, when he starts talking about the sun that some people think may think that's a little bit far-fetched, but maybe it recalls the simile of the sun from the Republic uh, and this constant reference to light, um, and maybe there's some connection between light and the gods, so, yeah, interesting. Uh, so thank you for raising all of that. And we'll uh, we'll definitely come back to those. Uh, we'll go to Darren and then Peter.
2: Uh, so I just want to respond to Steve's comment. And also, you know, Clint was jumping off of that too. So um, I have similar misgivings as Steve does about, you know, the establishment of a state religion and the punishment for having false religious, or even just false metaphysical beliefs. <laughs> I don't know. Meta- mixing metaphysics and politics is, a let's just say, complicated <laughs> affair, uh, to put it lightly. Um. However, I'm just going to say I'm going to withhold judgment about how to understand what's going on here, because I have only read book 10 of the laws at the moment. So I haven't read a single word <laughs> of anything else in this dialogue. This is a very, very, very long dialogue. So I'll be interested. So I believe we're going back to, we're going to start a book one again in the next meeting and we're going to continue reading from there. So things I'll be looking for, because we, we've had a lot of meetings on Plato and, you know, we read a lot of Plato by this point, And I think we understand that the context of the dialogue and the dramatic setting is so important in interpreting like what happens later in the dialogues <laughs> and what they're saying. Like, I don't even know the context of why they're creating this state. Like, I understand that they they want to create a new colony somewhere, but like, who are the people going to be there? Like, do they discuss that? Like that could make a difference in how we should interpret this. And like, how is this colony related to other colonies? (laughs) And the rest of Greece, like that might have an effect on how we should interpret the need for, you know, the state religion. You mentioned, I think maybe it was earlier this meeting, or last meeting that like they wanted to create a state to prevent war. I mean, if that was high enough on the priority list, I could see, like, that could justify, you know, maybe certain measures. But I don't understand this historical context or the context that's happening here. And so... I'm just going to withhold judgment about, like, <laughs> how to interpret this metaphysics and the need for state religion or, um, or these punishments until maybe I understand more of this broader context. So I guess this is also an invitation for everyone at this meeting today to continue with us reading <laughs> the next session and so on. And then maybe we'll get more of this background for, like, why they're creating this state. And it might bear on how we should understand the place of metaphysics in this state. Um, just, in the, just another final quick point is um also on this is that... um. I mean, I also noticed that the discussion of metaphysics here was couched even at the beginning of Book 10, even though I haven't read the rest of the laws, but even at the start of Book 10, they were talking about the need for justification and that they're discussing this in the context of providing justification, not in the abstract, not to other philosophers, but to actual, the actual people who are going to be living here about these laws so i'll also be looking for as we you know go back and read more of this context how they understand justification because that could be important like how much back and forth is there and like what kinds of in um james brought up how there's a lot of discussion of this institutions in this dialogue i don't know any of that so maybe some of these institutions bear on justification or related to justification which could put limits on the powers of certain people such as how, you know, this death penalty for having the wrong metaphysics is actually supposed to happen. you know, I, i'm I'm a bit worried about that too myself. But, like, I want to hear more about what the nature of justification is, what kind of institutions, what what the understanding of institutions are, including legal institutions, and so on because I share a lot of the misgivings that, that people have brought up. But I'm, you know, I'm just going to withhold judgment for now and just going to see what the larger picture is
0: mm-hmm. And thank you for that and for raising book one, which we'll go to indeed next session. I actually reread book one this morning and was really kind of struck about the the, the connection between peace and reason. Uh, so in book one, they start talking about the creation of this colony and they start talking about how Crete's constitution and in fact, many other constitutions are designed for war. They're designed to protect a particular society. They're designed to prevent individuals from being out of control, all of this. Whereas the Athenian, well, the three of them, in fact, agree. I think that a peaceful approach to constitution-making is better. And I think I was really struck by the centrality of reason to Book 10, you know, as I've now read it probably four or five times, uh, and how if a soul denies reason itself, that is a diseased soul. We'll actually use we'll actually see the term disease used in today's reading. And so the question is how far do you let the diseased soul continue uh, to expound things that are not reasonable? We see situations in today's world where souls are expressing things that are clearly unreasonable. Um now, it's one thing to express something that's unreasonable if. It doesn't cause harm to anybody, but I think we're seeing cases where the soul's power of persuasion, when combined with lack of reason, leads to some very significant harm to many, many people, uh, and leads to war, in fact. And so maybe this is where they're going with this focus on what reason is. And the connection, I think it's important in Book 10, this connection between reason and the gods. And let's remember that reason in Plato's sort of construction of the universe, reason sits right in the middle of the soul. It moderates need and desire. So reason is is the soul's mechanism to balance need and desire. And each of us are capable of it, but then he's then now tying it to a universal soul. So the universe itself has reason. And the reason is the first cause is what he's saying. So this, this is why I think starting with book 10, I found was helpful to understand the whole context of what they're going to proceed to talk about through the rest of the dialogue. So we look forward to going to book one next time. And as you said, to see how all of this ties. So thank you. Uh, we'll go to Peter and then Steve and then Jason.
1: To go back to what I initially said in regards to the relationship towards, let's say, the circle as object or the circle as subject, in regards to two different ways of relating to the same thing in regards to the quality, of the the of uh, the quantity sort of producing the quality or the quality producing the quantity in regards to of um, the relationship towards object and observer effect. I would say that of course this idea of it is the observer that produces the circle in regards to the Athenian's perspective in relationship towards its reaction and relationship to the object, which is the circle, which is the, you know, the universal infinite soul, the one who is able to hold the entire circle of mind where we as beings limited in time and space, using minds, using soul in order to hold objects in our minds, that's because we're limited to time and space cannot be infinite but can eventually get closer and mirror of the infinite, such as you know the four elements being the square or of um, you know going for the Pentagon oc- um, hexagon, heptagon, octagon, getting closer and closer of applying models to be in conformity with the evidence and trying as best as we can to get as close to the circle in regards to how we connect that which we see in a fundamentally reasonable way, so that the harmonious nature of evidence can of, uh, continue to increase so as to uh, take into account all that we see and perceive in a way that is harmonious logically. Therefore, the infinite mind and soul being infinitely logical in relationship to all phenomena because they see and have access to the root and model of how things operate, where we have to continuously develop it in relationship to the circle. And I think it is in that aspect, that uh, potential of reflecting as best as we can the natural order of things, the natural logic of things, uh, systematically with society, that we attempt to uh, get closer in harmony with the fundamental idea of what does it mean to have a structure that is more eternal than otherwise, so that... The closer we as a society become to the circle, the more consistency will naturally uh, um, continue from the generation to generation without the leading to collapse, war, or the uh, uh, disharmony in one form or another. And I think it is in that quality of the soul, this idea of the circle and all its variations or of... um, it's it's degradations into all the different kinds of structures and of the soul's relationship to it of increasing and diminishment of love and hate and all of these different kinds of fundamental relationships to idea to reality to two objects that uh, we become um, aware of the internal mappings of all the different ways in which we both can understand the world ourselves and each other and all these systems and to navigate them in increasing complexity towards a harmonious relationship towards all the various phenomena that are yet present. And I think it is in that pursuit of going towards infinity. But again, even though um, our soul fundamentally may be infinite, so much of our mind is bound by time and place, and so we cannot see all things, nor do we have the capacity. Incarnate as mortals to be able to connect everything yet together into coherent models. But it is in our pursuit and evaluation of logic, of the rationale, that we can continuously pursue a logical and coherent and harmonious relationship to what we perceive into greater and greater models towards the infinite. Mm-hmm. And so with that, apply that to a societal organization so that we may and yet create harmonious relationships for generations ad infinimum.
0: Mm-hmm. You really use some powerful terms, I think, in what you were saying. And uh, you touched on so many of the concepts, I think, in that part that I read. You talked about harmonious. And certainly harmony and disharmony of the soul is something that's very much of concern here. And I think to the extent that they want to enforce at least a, an acceptance of reason as being primary, that I think is their baseline for harmony. Um, and then they are very concerned about disharmony. And so I think that's maybe those three references to cycle that I mentioned in that reading that I did. Um, I like the way you talked about the degradation of the circle and you, you want to keep a circular form because then the motion can keep going. But if it degrades, and eventually the motion reaches an edge and stops uh, that was a really interesting way of putting it and then also you talked i think about the, at the beginning about you know subject and object and it makes me think maybe that if the universe itself has a soul as plato says and as they're developing their case here then the soul is both subject and object and how does that work we're we're not used to that we're used to just one or the other but uh, i think here we're kind of seeing two channels of understanding this back and forth between subject and object, which is a a different way of seeing things and very difficult way of seeing things. And so, um, yeah, thank you for that. Really interesting connections of ideas there.
1: If I may say one more thing, this idea of, in the Bible, this idea of the numbers on our head, the number of hairs on our head, this idea that mathematics is intrinsic to the universe and not merely a human conception, that if there are a definite number of hairs in my head, then if there is a, a definite numerical value, then there has to be some intrinsic awareness of that numerical value. That numerical value exists intrinsically, whether or not I or anyone else has measured it. Therefore, there is a mind that has quantity in awareness,
0: at the Mm -hmm. least. Mm -hmm. And maybe to put that in the context of modern physics, maybe that's the law of conservation of information. You know, the information is the number of hairs on your head, and that's conserved, and that's conserved in the universe. So... Very interesting thoughts. Thank you. Uh, we'll go to Steve and then Jason.
4: Yeah, if you could go to the, uh, the end of uh, footnote 7, all the way to the last sentence, or last two sentences. By virtue of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and Goethe's incompleteness theorem, reductio ad absurdum delivers greater proof of logic than sensory observation, and it is critically important logical measurement for reason which is subject neither to imp- empirical proof nor to physical measurement so i think i take a, a different reading of this i th- see that you're uh, with this you're generalizing the ideas of heisenberg's uncertainty principle and in godel's incompleteness theorem which is heisenberg's uncertainty p- is saying that this is in the quantum realm only that if you know the uh, motion, you cannot know the uh, mass, or if you know the mass, you can't know the motion, because you you as in in the quantum realm, by having any observation, you've had an impact on on the quantity you're looking at, so you're skewing the other quantity. So this actually proves that these areas between uh, quantum uh, are probabilistic, you know, where they're talking about that there cannot be anything in the world that is reason based it shows that you know all the principles that with quantum mechanics shows that it is probabilistic and that there is no actual real reason behind what is going to happen no and you can't re- not only that you it's not accessible for us to reason but there actually isn't a reason and more so too on godel's incompleteness theorem is showing that you cannot have any formal system that is absolutely complete and correct Or another way of saying is that you can't have an axiomatic system like mathematics. You're always making some assumption, you know, so if you're making an an assumption in order to build your system, you know, at some point you're going to get into a reductio ad absurdum, a a loop that you can't prove it. So I think the assumptions that are underlying all of these arguments are based, uh, you know, as Plato's creation mythology of, from the Timaeus and um, where he brings up the uh, justifications for a lot of these reasons about you know the soul and the center of the universe and reason being first and all that but the only the only uh argument that he gives is a mythological so from th- something that happened prior to the creation of the sun the earth and the moons and when the uh Athenians and the Lantian people from Atlantis were engaged in disputes. It was nine thousand years ago before there was any writing, so it's it's mythological. It's it's not a very good axiomatic system. And uh, by Gödel's incompleteness theorem, in any case, it proves that you you know it demonstrates that you could not find a absolute knowledge. The idea that you know that they're saying they have shown that it, it is knowledge and not long, no longer belief. Uh, Is proven incorrect by uh, Gödel's theorem.
0: Thanks, and thank you for raising the issue of the uncertainty principle and Gödel's incompleteness theorems, which apply in the physical realm. Those apply in the realm of becoming. The beauty of the realm of being, at least I think in Plato's concept, is that those things don't apply. And I just was recalling what Peter said when you were speaking about the increasing the awareness of the internal mappings. We'll never have the complete internal mapping scheme, but reason will take us closer to that. So I'm not sure that um, that the uncertainty principle and the incompleteness theorems negate the operation of reason. They make it more difficult for sure, but I don't think it negates the operation of reason. Uh, reason still exists.
4: It's just a point of order. I'm not saying yeah. reason doesn't exist. I'm saying right. that nobody can claim to have complete knowledge. Yes, reason is definitely exist, but the thing being asserted here is that it's no longer belief that it's knowledge of things.
0: Okay, yeah, and you know, you called attention to my footnote 7, which is my my take on this, um, and I just wanted to highlight in that that one cannot have complete empirical knowledge, but I think knowledge can be arrived at by reductio ad absurdum, such as knowledge of the square root of 2 is not had by any empirical evidence the the knowledge that the square root of two is incommensurable is arrived at by reductio ad absurdum, which to me, if we're dealing with something that's in the realm of becoming, which is not subject to empirical evidence, then you have to go the route of reductio ad absurdum to arrive at some knowledge of that, at least knowledge of limitations of knowledge, I think maybe because we may never have that internal mapping that Peter talked about. So, no, thank you for, for raising that. And I think that's this is something that we need to continue to think about is that distinction between being and becoming. Um, so we'll go to Jason and then Clem, and then I, I want to move on to the next session uh, section that I wanted to read. So, uh, Jason, welcome.
7: Thank you. Uh, I was interested in this problem. We haven't heard anything about theory and idea and how it relates to form. I know the word idea is... Plato, the word form, and I'm trying to figure out, you know, because there's this discussion about what Plato's trying to do, but I think theory and idea are really important in terms of understanding the form of government Plato is trying to establish. For instance, uh, form becomes theory when it's the happiest activity done with no other purpose. It comprises the highest human end, and that to me that sounds like an effort at creating a government. What is the highest human end? You know, governments aren't just established to control people. They're, they're, the government is trying to make people happy and trying to allow people to display their talents and and also develop their happiness. So I'm I'm wondering what form, idea, and theory have to do with these chapters. I haven't heard any discussion on this at all, but for Plato, it's really important. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you.
0: And thank you for raising that, because uh, form is definitely uh, I don't think he ever talks about the forms in this dialogue, which is interesting actually when I think about it, but the forms here are here, I think, in the context of definitions, and I think he's saying that there's a universal definition of God, which connects to the universal definition of reason, and then he's bringing in the good. Um, He's bringing in a number of things that are form-like, I guess, and so that's an interesting question. And, And, you know, he does raise, in the part that we read two weeks ago, he does talk about the need to be able to talk about a word and then go to the definition of the word, and then to start with the definition and go back to the word. Um, And that's almost, to me, like an appeal to universal definition. And so that's something that we can keep in mind as we continue reading this. But you raise an an interesting question there. Um, I think when we go to book one, I think we'll find that the purpose of a society is not for happiness, not directly for happiness. I think it's for peace. And I think the implication is that peace will lead to happiness. So uh, I think that's maybe where he's going, but we'll we'll see where that takes us. So thank you, and then we'll go to Clem.
5: Okay, thank you, uh, thank you everyone. By the way, um, great discussion, a lot of different points raised, and there's a really a lot that's buried or encrypted in these couple of paragraphs that, <laughs> that we're discussing, and I'm sure they're all tying to other dialogues where you know uh, Plato is talking about ideas and, and forms and, and so on. So it's it's almost like you, you know you have to collect this. Puzzles, you know, piece by, by piece by referring to other dialogues. But I kind of wanted also to add on something that I believe Ian was saying when the correct language forms or the, the figures of language or correct um, objects as maybe as analogy or symbols uh, were mentioned. I think it has to do with how carefully your theory is, uh, you know, put in words. So, going back to this, let's let's call it symbol um, of a of a circle, right, that, that symbolizes the soul, and it's a, it has to be self-moving, where the movement is originated within that particular object, which is the soul, and would say we say it's round, and it has two, you know, two points. Moving at different speeds, obviously. And I found that a bit ironical when there was like this focus on that this happens somehow magically. Like, how how come that these two points are moving at different speeds? Uh, Apparently, it was like a a discovery back then. The people were, you know, amazed about geometry and and basic principles of motion. Uh, And they used that as much as they could as tools or as models to support other. Types of theorizing, um, but how about offering a slightly different object or model for for the soul, for the imagery of the soul, which would also be moving in a way, right? But that's you know, just to me, for some reason, moving in a circle, in a circular motion of a of a disc moving in a circular motion, whether it's counter or pro clockwise. You know, it's a little bit uh flat. How about we say it's a pulsating sphere, like a star? You know, there's a motion there, too. And I think as a, as an image, it provides a much better maybe transition point from something that's non-physical to, to physical, right? It, it, I mean, maybe that's a better suited for a modern mind. I mean, with the sun, they talk a a little bit about the image of the sun. I don't know if they knew that the sun also rotated around its uh, axis or not, but the sun also pulsates in a way, right? And we we experience the radiation from the sun. So, I mean, that's another image and it's not necessarily a circular motion. It's the motion within the object. So that's one point, just a quick remark on that. And I kind of wanted also to touch on, on what Peter was saying, regarding this ever happening attempt to reach the the infinite right by maybe by way of reasoning that's always trying to approach the infinite, but never really reaching the end. But at least we can m- maybe come up with better models each time. And, or maybe we can take different points of view and kind of, you know, synthesize with each Evolutionary step, right? In in our modeling, we can maybe get maybe closer and closer, but we'll probably never reach uh, the the absolute. Uh, you know, then if we take that approach, we have to position something that's you know that's outside of the the framework, whether it's a, a scientific or uh, philosophical, metaphysical, theological, something that's completely unreachable, but with, towards which we can tend with with our modeling. Uh, and I think that's quite a, quite an accommodating model for any branch of human knowledge, right? Whether it's science or, or philosophy or theology and, and so on. Uh, and it would be like a very general framework within w- which you can work. You just have to admit that. Uh, and I think we're kind of admitting that. I, I think modern science is kind of trying to admit that. Theology obviously admitted that a long time ago. Um, as far as really like down to my original question i still don't know how within the framework that plato is offering how he would make that transition from color anger opinion you know these are all attributes or qualities of the soul that he says are the original ones they're older than other objects or forms that we find in the universe, and then these forms, other forms, So let's say, I, we, we say that color, anger, opinion, and so on, are also forms, but they're, you know, non-physical forms of the soul, and they are original, so they must be the origin of other forms, including physical forms. And so, while I'm not denying that this can somehow <laughs> happen, it's just not very elaborated. It's In mm-hmm. fact, it's just there's a, there's a gap in there basically he starts with one thing saying stating that these are older these are original qualities or forms you know different maybe modulations of the soul Mm -hmm. and then from there because there's nowhere else where the physical properties can come from so then how the heck does a physical property (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know come from anger or Mm -hmm. opinion so so there's there's a logical block there it's, we're in kind of in a trap there, like logical trap. So that I'm just, I'm pointing, I'm just pointing this out. I'm not trying to criticize it, but we come to these logical traps, like, you know, pretty often, right. In that, in our judgments, in our, you know, modeling.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think it, it is about connecting the physical with the metaphysical, I think really, and this is where I think in the next section that I wanted to read about the sun, this is where we see this interesting connection that he makes. And I'd like to Go ahead and read that if I could. I know there's Ian and Peter. Uh, I'm wondering if your comments could wait until I finish reading that section, or are they relatively brief if you wanted to make them now? Or shall I go ahead and, and read the, the next session? We we can come back to your questions if that's all right. Why don't I do that then, if you, if you don't mind? I, I just wanted to read this bit from 898D to 900C, which Ian mentioned in his earlier comments. So we'll come back to you, Ian and Peter. Um, so I just wanted to start here, 898D, the Athenian says, if in principle soul drives round the sun, moon, and the other heavenly bodies, does it not impel each individually? Quini says, of course. The Athenian says, let's take a single example. Our results will then obviously apply to all other heavenly bodies. And your example is, the Athenian says, the sun. Everyone can see its body, but no one can see its soul. Remember here that the universe itself has a soul. So I guess the sun has a soul. Not that you could see the soul of any other creature, living or dying. Nevertheless, there are good grounds for believing that we are in fact held in the embrace of some such thing, though it is totally below the level of our bodily senses, and it is perceptible by reason alone. So by reason and understanding, let's get hold of a new point about the soul. What, says Clinius, if soul drives our sun, we shan't go far wrong if we say that it operates in one of three ways. What are they, asks Clinius? Athena says, either A, the soul resides within this visible spherical body and carries it wherever it goes, just as our soul takes us around from one place to another, or B, it acquires its own body of fire or air or some kind, as certain people maintain, and impels the sun by external contact of body with body, or C, it is entirely immaterial but guides the sun along its path by virtue of possessing some other prodigious and wonderful powers. When you says, yes, it must necessarily be by one of those methods that the soul manages the universe. Now wait just a minute, the Athenian responds. Whether we find that it is by stationing itself in the sun or by driving it like a chariot or by moving it from outside or by some other means that this soul provides us all with light, every single one of us is bound to regard it as a god. Isn't that right? Clinius answers yes. One would be absolutely stupid not to. Athenian continues. Now consider all the stars and the moon and the years and the months and all the seasons. What can we do except repeat the same story? A soul or souls, and perfectly virtuous souls at that, have been shown to be the cause of all these phenomena, and whether it is by their living presence in matter that they direct all the heavens, or by some other means, we shall insist that these souls are gods. Could anyone admit this and still put up with people who deny that everything is full of gods? No, sir, nobody could be so mad, Clinius responds. Euthenian continues, now then, Megillus and Clinius, let's delimit the courses of action open to anyone who has so far refused to believe in gods and get rid of him. Clinius says, you mean? Athenian says, either he should demonstrate to us that we're wrong to posit soul as the first cause to which everything owes its birth, and that our subsequent deductions were equally mistaken, or, if he can't put a better case than ours, he should let himself be persuaded by us and live the rest of his life a believer of gods. So let's revise the thesis we argued for the existence of gods against the non-believers. Was it cogent or feeble? Feeble, sir, says Clinius, not in the least. Very well, then, the Athenian says. And this is where I have this issue with the translation here where he uses atheists. I would say the other translation is a little bit better in saying that the those who don't, do not believe in the gods, uh, Atheist is a, it has modern connotations. So the Athenian says very well. So I'll read it as originally translated. He says, so far as atheists are concerned, we may regard our case as complete. Next, we have to use some gentle persuasion on the man who believes in gods but thinks they are unconcerned about human affairs. My splendid fellow, will say, your belief in the existence of gods probably springs from a kind of family tie between you and the gods that draws you to your natural kin and makes you honour them and recognise their existence. What drives you to impiety is the good fortune of scoundrels and criminals in private and public life, which in reality is not good fortune at all, although it is highly admired as such by popular opinion, and its misplaced enthusiasms. Poetry and literature of every kind invest in it with a pernicious glamour. Or perhaps you observe men reaching the end of their lives, full of years and honor, leaving behind them their children's children, and your present disquiet is because you've discovered, either from hearsay or personal observation, a few of the many ghastly acts of impiety which, you notice, are the very means by which some of these people have risen from humble beginnings to supreme power and dictatorships. The result is that although by virtue of your kinship with the gods, you'd clearly be reluctant to lay such things at their door, Your mental confusion and your inability to find fault with them has brought you to your present predicament where you believe they exist, but despise and neglect human affairs. Now, we want to prevent your thoughts from becoming more impious than they are already. Let's see if argument will ward off the disease while it is still in its early stages. We must also try to make use of the original thesis we argued so exhaustively against the absolute atheist by linking the next step in the exposition to it. So thank you for letting me read that. I... um, we can go back to Peter, and then you know any thoughts on this particular section that I read. And I do want to get to the next section, which is I think a very important one. That's 903, uh, 903A, 90, yeah, 903A. So, uh, Mark, uh, Ian, sorry, your your uh, your thoughts.
6: Thanks, James. Yeah, I go by Mark. This okay. is good. Right. I was thinking I raised my hand when James had asked the uh, the other James, I think, had asked about forms, and. I know that you had pointed out the idea of uh, sameness and you referred to the repetition of the idea of sameness in the motions and you connected it with the five kinds, which are really the five great forms in the sophist. So that's one sense in which you can see, He, he may not be using the word form, but everything that he's talking about refers back to kind of the universal concepts that the forms do in some way relate to. Uh, When he talks about the circularity of motion, the idea of circularity would be a form, for example. Uh, And when he talks about noose, I think what he's suggesting is that it's only the forms that noose is most apt to be able to perceive or another, another way of saying that forms are perceived by noose, I think. Uh, and then the only thing I would mention, add to that is, um, I think it was at 898 E, which I think you read. And this is where he says that the soul is imperceptible and it is an object of reason alone and i think that's in a way an important step in in philosophy at this time and other philosophers i think have walked in plato's pathways that he's opened up here
0: and and thank you for that i, I think too as you know as you said he doesn't talk directly about other things in other dialogues like the sophist uh, but he does. I find these references all through uh, this dialogue. So I think he's, I think he's built this dialogue uh, to be kind of a compendium of all of his, of all of the thoughts that he's put in all of his dialogues, without specific reference to them, but by secondary references or putting them in a different context. I think he's leading us to some sort of understanding about how all of these multiple ideas for all of his dialogues come together in the construction of a constitution that could be successful so i, I think that's interesting so there are these these echoes of all of his dialogues throughout this one so so thanks and then we'll take peter
1: so i think of uh, in
2: relationship
1: to the fundamental idea of uh, the, the two types of soul right the of a uh, the one that is more noble the one that is not and relating that towards the idea of the rational, in regards to the model of which we of uh, um, reflect the true or absolute or the infinite. And uh, to me, the metaphor that I wish to bring up is the coastline paradox. you know we cannot truly measure it because all the different kinds of specificity goes potentially infinitely long. Therefore, any model falls short. And that's always going to be the case in regards to the rational relationship to how long a coastline actually is. But it is from that that we then get this uh, um, false dichotomy of that which conforms to the model and that which is outside. We do not see the logic which is outside our models. So we need to use other models in order to explain why it so happens. We could say that, well, you know, everything exists in nature. So therefore I explained everything by that fundamental concept. If anything happens, it is because it is natural. And so then we don't need any necessarily further logic, but we wish to be specific. We wish to be rational in regards to explain the, the structure as to why and how things end up being. And so it is in that relationship of the model of what seems to be coherent and what is outside that model and thus incoherent. The coastline seems fundamentally incoherent no matter how far we develop the model. Yet it is the idea of the infinite mind holding the infinite model, like the circle, that can measure the coastline, because fundamentally, we believe that it is finite, because it is complete, despite the level of potentially infinite specificity in regards to how far it actually goes. So it is in that relationship of the rational, our perception of the rational, and the greater infinite rational, that we end up playing into the relationship between our idea rational, and the actual rational.
0: I like the way you brought measurement into that, and the coastline problem is a very interesting one. And, it, you know, talking about echoes of of this dialogue to others, I mean, the question of measurement is, was fundamental to the Theaetetus, is man the measure of all things? Uh, I think this dialogue is bringing us to some sort of conclusion, or at least them to some sort of conclusion, that man is not the measure of all things, because all things Are not subject to measurement, and measurement necessarily involves reason, which is itself not subject to measurement. So maybe that's the answer why man is not the measure of all things. And as you said, we don't see the logic, so we use other models. And I'm wondering if that's really kind of essentially what Gödel was saying with his incompleteness theorem that there always has to be a model for something, um, and there is never this final completeness. So interesting connections there. Thank you. I'm just wondering, you know, before we go on to the next section, this idea that, as the Athenian says, he's he's saying it's almost as if he's saying put up or shut up here. It's you know where he says either the disbeliever should demonstrate to us that we're wrong to posit soul as the first cause to which everything owes its birth, and that our subsequent deductions were equally mistaken, or if he can't put a better case than ours, he should let himself be persuaded by us and live the rest of his life a believer in gods. So here, I think the Athenian has become very comfortable that he has uh, provided proof that the gods, as defined, as defined, not necessarily as we talk about God today, but as they have defined the gods as this connection to reason, um, he's saying, unless you can prove that we're wrong and they do not exist as the first cause, then really you have to accept this. This is is fundamental. You, You cannot... You cannot continue with a belief that reason is not the first cause, that reason is prime. And, and you know, as I said, I, I think earlier, it's, it's dangerous to force people into believing something that they don't. But then if you've provided ironclad proof, and that's really, I guess, a question of this, is whether he's provided ironclad proof, then what's to be done if somebody denies reason? Are Are they to be allowed to spread this disease that he talks about in this section throughout the community. So, Steve, your thoughts?
4: Yeah, I, th- I think it's, you know, as I've expressed already, I don't think they've given an ironclad uh, argument. They don't have a good foundation on their axioms of what they're what they're expounding. The idea of the soul and that, you know, that's the center of the universe. And, and they're all based on... Uh, the current mythology of their time, the Greek mythology. And if you accept some parts of it, you have to accept all of it. You know, you can't pick and choose. So, I mean, you can't say that we we want the parts where he's talking about reason and that, and the, but you have to also accept the fact that they're talking about the sun and the motion of the sun. And, you know, they make allusion to chariots. And it's like, you know, the idea that Apollo took the sun around the earth every day that the motions that the, you know, from this reading, it, it gives the appearance that they think the sun is going and the other, like the other planets are going around the earth. So they're, they're basing their reason, their determination or reason is, is incomplete and not proven. And, you know, through history, you can see that, you know, the extension of this is would be the Gnosticism. Gnostic movement uh, flourished, you know, for a while, it's it's a combination of Plato's uh, and the Neoplatonics, uh, the hermeneutics also, and uh, I think James, I think, did some work on the translator of Plato, was it, uh, Marsilio Ficino, mm-hmm. he was also a, tr- a translator of the hermeneutics, so you have to see that these, through you know, after Plato, in the Neoplatonists, these ideas that like, came from Egyptian, you know, beliefs or, you know, knowledge, the Egyptian knowledge, combined with the Platonic logic, came up with these theories that were, you know, eventually banned by the Christian church. So I don't think they're saying that they dropped the mic, that they've proven their point, and I'm saying, no, they, they don't have, uh, they haven't really demonstrated their foundational arguments.
0: And, you know, I, I understand that view. It's, uh, it's difficult to understand what he's talking about in the previous section that we ended our last session on without understanding all of Plato's cosmology and then getting into the depths of the geometry and the mathematics of how that works. And so I think there's an appeal to the philosophy of it overall, um, and one can get into the details of it if one wants. I think the Athenian is very confident that he has proven it without a shadow of a doubt. I think he's also competent to say that if you don't believe that he's proven it, then you must present your own proof. It's it, this, this this point uh, of uh, this, this line with reason that uh, we can't just let people continue to express whatever they believe without reason. Reason needs to be acknowledged. And so, you know, I won't ask you, Steve, to prove what the first cause is, but I would say to modern science, um, they have not established what the first cause is. In fact, I just finished reading a book by a physicist who refers to the problem of the primary cause in his book. And so it is very much a standing problem with modern physics, the problem of the primary cause. So if anybody has a better explanation, let them add it. But if they don't have a better explanation, then you know maybe we have to accept some sort of reductio ad absurdum that there is no other uh, explanation for the first cause. Um, so, Better
4: explanation would be the what is the generally accepted scientific explanations that we have that are, are based on the widest breadth of knowledge, you know, cosmology and astrophysics right. of the Big Bang, the evolutionary theory of, of the yeah, universe yeah, but, and stars. But the what's energy. the first...
0: What's the cause of the big bang? That,
4: There can never be an absolute proof, as Gödel's incomplete theorem right. says. Right. You can get, you can show a better proof. I'm not showing a one that I say is absolutely true. I'm yeah. showing one that's much, much better than yeah. what they're putting forth here.
0: Yeah, and I agree, there is no absolute proof. But what's the cause of the Big Bang, right? That's the problem of the primary cause, which the physicists agree is still a problem, right? So they haven't proved that
4: either. They haven't proved that no. either. So and the Big Bang are... is
0: still a conjecture, right? So, yeah, yeah it's
4: any anything is yeah. saying the Earth is spherical is a conjecture. Yeah. It's still it's based yeah. on a lot of evidence, you exactly. know, the same thing. And there's a lot more evidence. There's less evidence yeah. for something that happened billions of years ago. But you know, what's what's our best theory? and Stopping people from, you know, saying bad things is a law that you can do. If you say, people are saying harmful things, then you make a law. You can't say that there's a fire in a theater, a crowded theater. There's a law against it. That because of the primary reason of existence is about because you have, you know, experimental reasons for why it is why it is a bad thing. People get hurt.
0: And that's an example of direct hurt but there's indirect hurt when people spread unreason through a community. And that's the disease that they're talking about here. So I, I take your point. I take your point and I, you know, we haven't reached any conclusions here. So let's continue with that and and see where we go. So I'll call in Clem and then I would like to read the section starting at 903B because it's a particularly powerful section. Uh, so Clem.
5: Okay. Uh, yep. Quick comment on the the, the first principle or the, the, the first origin, whether viewed scientifically or theologically or metaphysically, in metaphysics that would be something uh, that would, would use a term eternity, for example, which would not be confused with everlastingness. So there's no dimension of time there. There's no actually dimension of anything that's a, of a nature of duration. Um, now, I don't know if that that's probably not a satisfactory scientific term, but something like that has been postulated by metaphysics and theology quite a long time ago. Um, now, I want to come back to that notion of two, um, uh, two souls, one benevolent and the other one evil, apparently. And that's also kind of a, a, a dilemma because Plato kind of breaks it right there and does not really go into a lot of explanation as to why two did they arise simultaneously? Are they equally um, the original sources? Are, are, we, are we now in the operating with some kind of dualism? Um, let's say we say that the benevolent soul is the original self-moving one. And then by logic, it should have generated the, the evil soul which then generated all, all other things and then, then, then we're opening the door to the early Christ, you know, Christianity, Gnosticism ideas and, and so on um, so again that's a, one of those puzzled moments it's like why did he mention the, the evil one well he had to because then you have to explain the problem of evil right so you have to find a source for that uh, but then you're stuck with the dualism But then he also is insisting that there's only one source. There there should be only one self or object or or subject that's the first origin of motion, self-moving something, because that has been stated as a necessary thing to happen prior to all other things in in the earlier paragraph. So it's just a, a quick observation of, you know, things that may, may be perceived as inconsistencies or maybe you know points that need to be further elaborated.
0: Thank you. And and I agree actually that does require some elaboration. And I'm just looking ahead to the next section because I think the reference that we'll see when I read this, when he says that the creator left it to the individual's acts of will to determine the direction of the changes. Um, maybe that's where the bad soul arises, is the, the bad soul is the one that takes the wrong direction, and the good soul is the one that takes the direction of the good, the path of the good, the form of the good being that which gives truth to the things known and the power to know to the knower. Um, you know, The question of evil actually makes me think of the Theatetus where uh, it's said that the greatest evil is when the soul is no longer able to reflect upon itself and becomes trapped in some sort of image where it's unable to escape these evil patterns that have been established. It's no longer able to reflect and to see a different path. It was a very powerful section in the Theotias that I've reused a few times in different uh, episodes here, and I can bring it up maybe the next time as well. So um, I appreciate you raising that. So I think your comments were a good segue to this. I really love this passage, 903b to 904e, to me, this is almost like the voice of reason is talking, but it's in the words of the Athenian. So anyway, the Athenian, who you know, I think the jury is still out in this group, but I think the Athenian, again, he thinks he's established the truth of the gods. He says, well, it looks to me as if we've given a pretty complete answer to this fellow who's always going on about the negligence of heaven. Clintus says, yes, we have. At any rate, continues the Athenian, our thesis has forced him to admit he was wrong. I still think we need to find a form of words to charm him into agreement." Pliny says, Well, my friend, what do you suggest? Reply from the Athenians, What we say to the young man should serve to convince him of this thesis. The supervisor of the universe has arranged everything with an eye to its preservation and excellence, and its individual parts play appropriate active or passive roles according to their various capacities. These parts, down to the smallest details of their active and passive functions, have each been put under the control of ruling powers that have perfected the minutest constituents of the universe. Now then, you perverse fellow, one such part, a mere speck that nevertheless constantly contributes to the good of the whole, is you. You have forgotten that nothing is created except to provide the entire universe with a life of prosperity. You forget that creation is not for your benefit. You exist for the sake of the universe. Every doctor you see, and every skilled craftsman, always works for the sake of some end product as a whole. He handles his materials so that they will give the best results in general, and makes the parts contribute to the good of the whole, not vice versa. But you're grumbling because you don't appreciate that your position is best not only for the universe, but for you too, thanks to your common origin. And since a soul is allied with different bodies at different times, and perpetually undergoes all sorts of changes, either self-imposed or produced by some other soul, The divine game player has nothing else to do except promote a soul with a promising character to a better situation and relegate one that is deteriorating to an inferior, as is appropriate in each case, so that they all meet the fate that they deserve. And he says, how do you mean? I fancy the Athenian responds, I fancy I could explain how easy it could be for gods to control the universe. Suppose that in one's constant efforts to serve its interest, one were to mold all that is in it by transforming everything by turning fire into water permeated by soul, for instance, instead of producing variety from a basic unity or unity from variety. Then, after the first or second stage of creation, everything would be arranged in an infinite number of perpetually changing patterns. But in fact, the supervisor of the universe finds his task remarkably easy. Phineas says again, what do you mean? Athenian responds this. Our king saw that A, that all actions are a function of soul and involve a great deal of virtue and a great deal of vice. B, that the combination of body and soul, while not an internal creation like the God sanctioned by law, is nevertheless indestructible, because living beings could never have been created if one of these two constituent factors had been destroyed. C, that one of them, the good element in soul, is naturally beneficial, while that bad element naturally does harm. Seeing all this, he contrived a place for each constituent where it would most easily and most effectively ensure the triumph of virtue and the defeat of vice throughout the universe. With this grand purpose in view, he has worked out what sort of position, in what regions, should be assigned to a soul to match its changes of character. But he left it to the individual's acts of will to determine the direction of these changes. You see, the way we we react to particular circumstances is almost invariably determined by our desires and our psychological state. Clinius says likely enough. The Athenian continues. So all things that contain soul change, the cause of their changing lying within themselves. And as they change, they move according to the ordinance of law of destiny. Small changes in unimportant aspects of character entail small horizontal changes of of position in space. While a substantial decline into injustice sets the soul on the path to the depths of the so-called underworld, which men call Hades and similar names, and which haunts and terrifies them both during their lives and when they have been sundered from their bodies. Take a soul that becomes particularly full of vice and virtue as a result of its own acts of will and the powerful influence of social intercourse. If companionship with divine virtue has made it exceptionally divine, it experiences an exceptional change of location, being conducted by a holy path to some superior place elsewhere. Alternatively, opposite characteristics will send it off to live in the opposite region. So I wanted to read that uh, and get some thoughts on that. Um, Michael.
3: Yeah, this won't probably surprise anybody, but I'd love to focus on that first big paragraph at 903C, um, because I think it really gets to what I see as kind of a, a central interpretive lens for Plato's writings, which is, I really see Plato, not just in this passage, but throughout the laws kind of pushing against a kind of individualism that is implied in the statement James brought up earlier that man is the measure of all things. Um, This idea that sort of the measure of what's true, the measure of what's good, depends on how it benefits me. And one of the ideas that I've sort of toyed with for a long time is that looking back to how plato describes the rulers or the leaders in the republic sometimes you know we translate that as the philosopher kings but when you read the laws especially passages like this one there's such an emphasis on service service to one another um, that your life exists for the benefit of your neighbor or for others That I really think, um, both in the Republic and here, Plato has this idea in mind of of leaders being philosopher servants, or as we call them today, civil servants. Um, And here I think he's giving the kind of metaphysical picture that would push against the individualism of man as the measure of all things, and is instead painting the sort of competing alternative, this collective picture that says well look we're here to serve each other but don't think that that means your life doesn't matter because when you serve you know other humans other creatures ultimately he says the whole universe he says that's good not only for the universe but you too there's this beautiful kind of like you know service is good for everybody (laughs) um picture here and i just think um it's a really stark contrast to the type of individualism that uh, I think a lot of us tend to encounter in modernity, where man really does seem to be the measure of all things, or to use the modern formulation, the customer is always right.
0: It's a good use of a modern term, I guess. But the idea that everybody is sort of an island unto themselves, can kind of do what they want, as long as they're not directly hurting anybody else. It's sort of maybe more like a zero-sum game, whereas opposed to this idea that everybody wins, as you said, that's the type of situation in which everybody gains, as opposed to a zero-sum sort of situation where it's me against you sort of thing. And this is what they're trying to avoid, this me against you situation uh, that we'll see in book one, a situation that does not lead to peace. So the idea that you exist for the sake of the universe and that that's good for you and the universe I think is a very different take on that constructing constitutions for battles you know one soul against another I think ultimately here he's saying all souls are kind of well he he says it's it's from a common origin we're all from a common origin so I think with that realization and maybe that's you know I asked the question in the last episode what would happen if it were to be proven. If, if we were to accept proof now that the first cause is the soul in the universe, what difference would that make? Well, maybe this is the answer, that understanding that we have a common origin could lead to some peace. I certainly think that wouldn't hurt. So thank you for those observations. And then we'll go to Steve and then Darren. Yeah, on the, before I get
4: into what my thoughts, as far as us today, we do have common origins, you know, on the earth as a you know, single cell organism, and prior to that, uh, non-biological life that was on earth. But my point is about the underlying statement about that you forgot the creation is not for your benefit, you exist for the sake of universe. I don't think that's anywhere proven to be the case. And how we got to the idea that serving others or being good to others. Is a benefit is by seeing that it's, it is a benefit to ourselves you see as you look in the family structure you look at yourself and your family and you want to take care of them and then all of uh, humans started out most of our time as human has been in tribal environments where most of the members of the tribe had some sort of family relations so what was good for you was also you know what was good for your neighbor was actually your cousin and, uh, you know, or he was somebody who's married to your cousin. This was all, you know, helping the genes survive that were your genes. You know, it's, it's the idea that you're being selfish is not necessarily true. What It is the type of social animals that we are with our rationality. We were able to expand the sphere of our benefits to more and more people. And when we're reading this, again, we have to remember this is a small percent of the elite that were engaged in this, that the majority of people, you know, all the women and uh, the slaves and most of the workers were field workers that lived basically like the lives of serfs. So the life of uh, people in the modern world, of the majority of the people, are much, much better than than it was in these ancient times. And, uh, you know, I think you have to use... uh, Rationality and reason and empathy is a base for uh, deciding on a social contract between people.
0: And thanks for that view. I mean, the common origin here is not talking about a common origin from the biology of this particular planet. It's talking about a universal or- origin that would be common. And I guess if there isn't a belief that we all have a common origin in the universe that's rooted in reason, then I guess how do we constrain this pursuit of individual gain or this pursuit of individual, um, not gain, but individual benefit, I guess? So how do we constrain that? I mean, I think we're seeing, as modern constitutions are playing out, we're seeing this increasing polarization in which people are not able to find some sort of method of balancing their, their personal interests. And it's leading to all sorts of... Um, you know, wars between countries, wars within countries, and wars between people. So I think this is really what they're after. And we'll see this in book one. How do we avoid the situation where we're always just trying to build laws based on particular ideas of one day? This is how we're going to constrain self-interest. And then a different idea comes along next day. And I think what they're trying to do is find some universal basis for all of this. And I think they're finding it in reason. But uh, let's definitely see where they're going with this. We'll take Darren, Clem, and then Roger. And then I think we will be out of time for today. I, I just want to leave maybe just two minutes at the end to read the definition of impiety because if they're imposing the death penalty, we better know what they're talking about in terms of impiety. Um, so Darren, Clem, and then Roger.
2: Well, it's, it's actually interesting what Steve was just saying, what he brought up, because I actually think this section might be a kind of direct response to what he was saying. So Steve mentioned how, you know, the best way to get people to act justly or act um, good, I guess, in a moral sense, is to show that it is good for them, too. Um, I think that a lot of philosophy has attempted to do this. (laughs) But here, the whole motivation for this section that you just read was actually precisely the issue of how it seems like it's the people who don't act justly, who don't act morally, who succeed in the world that's being described. And that's as they say here, like driving people to impiety or disbelief in deism, that you know the gods are indifferent and they don't care because it seems like the people who act well, you know, are don't get acknowledgement and they might even suffer. And the people who act terribly are the ones I think at one point in this dialogue, or several points, he says they even become the leaders of these states, the people who act the worst. So I think the connection between acting. According to reason and rationally, and in acting good and acting justly, in that connection with one's own well-being isn't that um, direct, or might not even be there. There might not be that connection, and that's like the precisely the problem that people see. And he's trying to resolve with this passage, or or this is one of the ways he's going to try to resolve it. So the solution, this the reply here, is that you forget that creation is not for your benefit. You exist for the sake of the universe. And that there's this larger picture. So the gods are trying to create, as he says here, the best results in general. So what that looks for you and how you fit into the big picture, it might be kind of obscure because, I mean, the section just before this was also about the gods' knowledge and <laughs> how the god knows all the little details and things. And how, like, you know, we might not be able to see that picture, but we should act well because, you know, we're part of this, I guess, larger purpose of the universe And uh, just one last observation is that I think it's interesting. I don't think anyone's highlighted this point yet that this section comes after a bunch of argument. And then he says here, but I still think we need to find a form of words to charm him into agreement. (laughs) So I think, I think it's an interesting aspect because it's like the person has, or these individuals or uh, that he's speaking to might have like certain needs of some kind. We can't just, Insofar as there may be there human beings that maybe the argument wasn't enough that we need to provide like a beautiful picture of how you fit in into this world, and um, I just wanna yeah tie this in just quickly with one thing that was mentioned previously. So I I thought it was really interesting, and this is from the reading last week about how when he was um discussing atheism and atheists and how you know it's a widespread view or whatever that the first thing he comes out to say is that in this connection I want first to make a crucial and irrefutable point. It's this, you're not unique. Neither you nor your friends are the first to have held this opinion about the gods. So I I find it so interesting that this is a kind of response because it's like saying like people, like especially a lot of these young people are atheists because it thinks it makes them, you know, special or cool or, you know, more knowledgeable (laughs) or something. Then So again, it's like it ties in this atheistic view with um, a kind of individualism, I guess. Because people like maybe one of the motivations is that, you know, these are young people and they're insecure and it thinks that makes them all, you know, all all intelligent, you know, to think like, oh, there's no gods. But then here he's trying to provide an alternate attractive, appealing image for people to fit themselves into. So and this this is just like I guess tying in with what maybe um Michael was saying earlier about the anti individualism or the push against individualism of this section at least. I haven't read the rest of the dialogue, but maybe yeah, uh-huh. this section.
0: And you'd make some good observations there. I think I really do want to avoid the word atheist in this dialogue, because I think that just brings too much modern baggage into what Plato was trying to say in terms about uh, of accepting knowledge of reason. I think that's really what he's asking us to do, accept the knowledge of reason. And I think to one of the issues that they talk about here is that part of the problem with people not believing in the gods is that they see these bad examples of wealthy or powerful people trying to buy their way out of all of the sins that they've done by you know giving money to a church or whatever. And and that somehow makes these bad deeds good. And, and that's not the case. So I think that's very much what's part of this argument here. So and you know, the power of persuasion, the soul has a power of persuasion, as we heard in the previous part of book 10. And this charm, I think, is that power of persuasion, and it's the attempt to reconcile before applying the punishment. And so I like that example that you give of, of providing a, a nice picture, maybe. And this is maybe how uh, people will be brought around to reason. So thank you for that. And then, Klim.
5: Okay. Uh, I think Darren kind of beat me to this with his discussion on the place in the in, in the universe, like the human place in the universe, and uh, the statement by Plato that we exist for the sake of the universe. And I think if I kind of extrapolate on what, what Darren had to say, we probably would go you know, outside of the scope of the the dialogue that Plato had or the course that Plato uh, wanted to take this uh, dialogue on. But when I read this actually the, the first time and I came across this, Phrase for the sake of the universe. I don't know why, but for, for some reason, it um, reminded me something of a more of a kind of science fiction approach to modern science fiction, maybe ideas. And that it, it has to do not so much with, you know, the uh, individualism or collectivism or the. Theology, religion versus science, um, believers versus non believers. I'm talking about something along the lines of maybe Stanislav Lem's uh, Solaris. And uh, Darren, if you ever want to put that movie in your movie reviews, so I'd be happy to attend. Don't put the one, though, with uh, the George Clooney, take the old Soviet one. Um, so basically, the idea—and I may be mis- misinterpreting Stanislav Lem's idea—but I think the place of the human in the universe can be viewed outside the scope that, that we're actually discussing right now. That Plato is being very um, social, kind of animal, right? Very political animal, and he wants—he um, wants to build a perfect society or very you know well balanced society where the the science fiction the modern science fiction may, may you know stretch this out to is some kind of a conscious universe and we're just being like little organisms like mini microscopic blurbs uh, within that universe that by which the universe is resolving its own issues or problems or finding answers that it has for itself. And we're just, um, you know, little algorithms, you know, maybe like codes, uh, you know, strokes of code that we think we're building something here. You know, we think that we're, you know, living meaningful lives, but in, in reality, maybe we're just the blind servants. Like when we go to a grocery store and we decide that oh, I'm going to buy this type of milk or this cereal, in fact, maybe we're resolving a, like a, a huge like mega universal problem you know and it takes almost like the whole eternity to to arrive at a point so mm-hmm. so maybe we're just like the the thoughts of the universe mm-hmm. in a way like right? we're the thoughts of the soul. that that does bring us back to the the origin of the soul if you want you can incorporate that into plato's big picture about the soul right but it's just it's a slightly different perspective on that very i would say a a moral one, you know, like removed from what we would understand as morality. You know, we're just like the tools and the, the little little mechanisms or the pieces of code that we have our own laws and you know, you know we act within those boundaries. But that's the purpose. You know, don't think about it. Yeah. Don't put any artificial purpose in front of you. Yeah. You know, there's a purpose of which we don't know, but we are you know actually benefiting, I guess, the, the whole cosmos by just being who we are.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting analogy to the movie. And, you know, the idea that we are each part of a whole, I think, is important to understand. So if if there's a whole, then we are each fractions. And in fact, one of the, the other translations actually used the word fraction. So if we're part of the whole, uh, it reminds me of the ending from the Parmenides, if the one is not, then nothing is. So we ha- all have to contribute to the whole for the survival of the whole as well as for the survival of ourselves. But in terms of you know the analogy of the movie, you know maybe life imitating art, I would just recall this statement in the part that I just read that he left it to the individual's acts of will to determine the direction of the changes. So it's not as if, I think it's, this is very empowering. It's not saying that the universe has programmed us and we are to follow what the universe says, which I think is, Somehow, some a lot of the way that God is perceived now that we are just little uh, responses that need to act according to the program, but we do have this will and we have the ability to determine direction and reason is the method that we use for that. And you mentioned a balanced society. I think that's the key to this dialogue is to achieve that balance with reason. And I think this is why the death penalty is prescribed for those who, against all proof and against all attempts to reconcile, deny reason. So so thanks for that. We are actually officially out of time, but if you have just a few minutes, I just wanted to call attention to this. It's a shorter section here from 891 C to 892 C. This is just before they prescribed the death penalty. Or sorry, not mentioned the wrong section there. It's 906 E to 907 D. So maybe if you can just bear with me for a few minutes, I'll just read this and then we'll close the meeting. So this is the Athenian says, so consider the guardians we instanced the moment ago. And here he's referring to leaders of armies and captains of ships. Can one compare gods to any of them without making oneself ridiculous? What about steersmen who are turned from their course by libations and burnt offerings and wreck both the ship and its crew? Cleonius says, of course not. Athenian says, and presumably they are not to be compared to a charioteer lined up at the starting point who is being bribed by a gift to throw the race and let others win. Cleonius says, no, sir, to describe the gods like that would be a scandalous comparison. Athenian continues, nor, of course, do they stand comparison with generals or doctors or farmers or herdsmen or dogs beguiled by wolves. What blasphemy, Clinius responds, the very idea. Now, aren't all the gods the most supreme guardians of all, and don't they look after our supreme interests? Very much so, agrees Clinius. Athenian continues, "So, so are we really going to say that these guardians of the most valuable interests, distinguished as they are for their personal skill in guarding, are inferior to dogs or the mere man in the street? who will never abandon justice in spite of the gifts that the unjust immorally press upon him. Glynus responds, of course not. That's an intolerable, intolerable thing to say. There's no sort of impiety that men won't commit, but anyone who persists in this doctrine bids fair to be condemned, and with every justification as the worst and most impious of the impious. The Athenian says, can we now say that our three theses, that the gods exist, that they are concerned for us, and that they are absolutely above being corrupted into flouting justice, have been adequately proved? Clinius responds, certainly, and we endorse these arguments of yours. Athenian responds, still I fancy that being so anxious to get the better of these scoundrels, we put our case rather polemically. But what prompted this desire to come out on top, my dear Clinius, was a fear that the rogues should think that victory and argument was a license to do as they please and act on any and every theological belief they happened to hold. Hence our anxiety to speak with some force. However, if we've made even a small contribution to persuading those fellows to hate themselves and cherish the opposite kind of character, then this preface of ours to the law of impiety will have been well worth composing. Clinius responds, well, there is that hope, but even with these results, the lawgiver will not be at fault for having discussed such a topic. So I just wanted to read that as the prelude to this imposition of the death penalty for the impious, just so that we understand what they're saying by impiety. And then this last part at the end where the Athenian says that we've been anxious to come out on top. You know, I think this is a little ironic reference to this battle between people where people are trying to win, so there's always a winner and a loser. So he's admitting that uh, they're engaging that kind of battle, but the key is not to give a license to people, to the rogues, to do as they please and act on any and every theological belief they happen to hold. And I think this is actually a very powerful statement against those who would uh, enforce beliefs on people and remember these characters don't think that they're dealing with belief now they're dealing with knowledge uh, so they're saying you know rogues try to enforce beliefs on people but when knowledge is knowledge then that's not something for debate so so i thank you all for attending book 10 i think we will come back to these themes very much and i can actually foresee In book one, which will start in two weeks, I I can foresee returning to some of these themes. So very much want to thank everybody for attending and participating and contributing to such a rich and wide-ranging discussion. I think we've covered so much, and there's still so much left to be covered in this, but uh, I think we've really hit on some very important points here. So... I will invite everybody to come back in two weeks. and those who would wish to stay online for a casual half hour unrecorded discussion in Plato's Cafe, you're more than welcome to. And then otherwise, I uh, look forward to seeing you. Later.